Hey, dear listeners. I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRB podcast and the support that many of you have given to the show. This podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. You enjoy the interviews, and I know some of my academic friends even use the podcast in their courses. I don't need to name names. You know who you are. I don't put any of these podcasts behind paywalls, and I never will because I don't believe the education I try to bring about Eurasian politics, history, and culture should be under lock and key. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. I also want to make some more swag in addition to the refrigerator magnets and, sh and shot glasses that I have available for patrons. And the costs of all this are on top of paying for the internet hosting, a website, equipment, a recording service, and the time to prepare, edit, and produce a show every week. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. Like I always say in every episode, the SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. It just isn't. So if you'd like some of those things too, here's what you can do. Become a patron. Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog and donate $5 or more a month. It's a very small amount to ask for. If you're short on funds, then write a review on iTunes and share the show on social media. This helps me expand my audience. It expands the exposure of the show. More people get to see it and listen. If you're at a university, you can also invite me to your campus to do live interviews talk about podcasting in public history, or other issues concerning Russia. Or if you or know someone who has a new book, article, or just something interesting to say about the region, then reach out. I'm always looking for topics and guests. I'm also looking to better the website or do some graphic, new graphic design. So if you have those skills and want to donate them to the podcast, also get in touch. And of course... Just tell your friends and family about the podcast. If they're into Russia or the wider region, or if you think they need to know more about it, then get them to tune in. There's a very large back catalog of interviews for them to enjoy. So become a patron at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog. Go to iTunes and write a review. Tell your friends, or just drop me a line to express your appreciation or offer some in-kind services. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. Amen, pretty. 
Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join that table of ranks. As readers of classic Russian literature know, the 19th century was a time of pervasive financial anxiety. With incomes erratic and banks inadequate, Russians of all social castes were deeply enmeshed in networks of credit and debt. The necessity of borrowing and lending shaped perceptions of material and moral worth, as well as notions of social respectability and personal responsibility. Credit and debt were defining features of Imperial Russia's culture of property ownership. As my guest Sergei Antonov explains, the social and cultural relations around debt provide for new ways for thinking about law, property, and capitalism in Imperial Russia, even before the great reforms of the 1860s. Sergei Antonov is an assistant professor of history at Yale University, where he specializes in modern Russia, with particular interest in politics, culture, and society in the late imperial and early Soviet period. He's the author of Bankrupts and Usurers of Imperial Russia, Debt, Property, and the Law in the Age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, published by Harvard University Press. Here's Sergei Antonov. One last thing before we get started, I had some technical difficulties with the recording of Sergei's track, and for some reason there was some distortion that goes in and out. I hope it isn't too much to ruin the interview and the listening experience, so my apologies for that. Now let's get started. So um, I found the title of your book, Bankrupts and Usurpers of Imperial Russia, Debt, Property, and Law in the Age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, quite curious, because, you know, most of these books are in the age of, say, a, a particular tsar. So in your case, it would be like the age of Alexander II or the age of the reforms or before the reforms or something like this, a more kind of social, political uh, subtitle. Um, so I, I was really struck by you have... You say it's in the age of these two very important writers, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. So what do these two writers have to do with the issue of debt in, in Imperial Russia? Yes, it's a great question. And uh, so this is going to be one of the maybe longer answers because it's um, there are really three reasons why I came up with that title. And it was not one of those situations when, you know, your editor invents a title for you. I was very conscious in uh, adopting, uh, using these names. Uh, and one probably most important reason is that so these readers, people who would read my book, would know about this period. Um, we can call it all it late Imperial Russia, you know, Victorian Russia, maybe through um, uh, this great classical literature, uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, but also other writers, Ostrovsky, the, the playwright Seltykov, Shedrin, uh, Turgenev, and so on. And and uh, some some of those intellectuals were financially successful, some were not, but uh, all of their work taken together very strongly reflects this intense anxiety about debt and uh, other things, uh, wealth, risk, money, 
Uh, and so I do, do provide some examples from novels and plays and memoirs, but no, the bulk of my research is about men and women who are completely unknown. Some of them, like you said, are very colorful, but they're not great figures. Uh, yet I think that this classical literature provides like a window into that period. So, 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 so that's 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 the most important reason. But in terms of why I did not adopt alternative titles, uh, uh, that that's also really a great um, question because it's like at the heart of the book, really. Because uh, I'm trying to get away from this from this obsession with the great reforms of Tsar Alexander and look at the under underlying structures and practices uh, of property ownership, uh, just how people dealt uh, with wealth and money, and and for for these issues, the reforms were important uh, to uh, to a limit. There were there was the court reform in 1864. Uh, reform of the bills of exchange in '62, but but there are a lot of really key things that happened much earlier in the century, and there are going to be a couple of other really important things that are going to happen, like in 1879. I'm, I'll be happy to talk more about this if you wish. Uh, so, in other words, I'm looking at this kind of continuities rather than these revolutionary breaks. Uh, also, I wanted to signal by uh, using Dostoevsky and Tolstoy in the title is um, that my work, methodologically speaking, it's not an economic history. So if you're an economic historian, you might find, well, you wish you could have more data, uh, you know, more uh, more numbers. I do try to provide some numbers when it's necessary, when they're not available from any other source. I had to go and find them. But uh, there are a lot of issues that I try to cover that are best addressed through cultural, legal, social history, um, in other words, things that are not uh, economic, they're not quantifiable necessarily. So y- your book examines, you know, like you said, it's not an economic history, it's a, it's a social and a, and a cultural history of debt, and, and looks at how debt, through looking at money lending, but also borrowing and, and the role of debt you weave a lot of relationships between individuals within within between families within families and between individuals in the state um and 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 the courts and the police so i thought we'd have you talk about how were money lending and debt viewed in russian society in the middle of the 19th century so let's look at it from two perspectives. Uh, so first, let's look at the lender's side, and then let's look at the borrower's side, because these are kind of really two questions, two separate kind of sets of you know cultural baggage uh, that comes with it. So we do have this cultural stereotype of a vicious money lender like Alena Ivanovna, the lender from Crime and Punishment who got killed, uh, who is, uh, as I think like, most people would remember who read the novel she was uh, she was this really mean vicious but uh, also very unproductive uh, completely kind of isolated from her social milieu uh, like her only social interaction is a uh, real social interaction like bite her sister on the ear right uh, so so you know that stereotype um like you know a lot of stereotypes like that i mean it's not completely invented of course uh, but it, it is a caricature and it's it's greatly exaggerated uh, and the reason why it's exaggerated is that uh, debt uh, at that time depended on largely on personal connections, on your personal reputation, who you know, how much people like you. Uh, so there wasn't like a credit card you could use. Uh, there were, you know, there were some uh, large banks, but but uh, it was very limited uh, in terms of like who could go, who could use them. Um, and I can tell you more about this if you if you were in a second. Uh, so. 
sometimes people like to use so-called quote-unquote professional lenders and there were reasonably few of them even in larger cities people and, and their careers were pretty short uh, for whatever reason um so sometimes they would go to these professionals and sometimes they went to relatives and friends uh, but but everything happened through these kind of informal and social ties and uh, they told us that these real life lenders they First of all, they came from all social groups. Some were aristocrats, some were you know peasants recently from the village. Uh, a lot of them were were these middle class officials, you know, merchants and so on. Uh, but but I'd say most lenders, most people you would describe as lenders, uh, we would call them to today um, investors. I would say rather than usurers or bankers or anything else like that. Uh, and so you really had to be well-adjusted socially. You had to like get along with your neighbors, basically, to succeed in this kind of work. So so that's the lenders. In, in terms of borrowers, well, there were these two extreme, um, again, two extreme cultural, cultural images. Uh, one was uh, this uh, trend to, uh, to live a debt-free life, to kind of deny yourself, uh, to accumulate money, uh, and uh, basically leave, leave, leave your children an inheritance without debt. Um, uh, but that was uh, just as extreme as its opposite side, which is this dissolute, uh, debt-ridden aristocrat, you know, spending all of his money on, you know, on racing horses and, uh, and, and things, wine and things like that. The norm was, by and large, I mean, people did not enjoy being in debt. They had any, we do, right? But uh, the idea was just to manage it rather than to avoid it altogether. And so this was a society when, where there was never enough cash to go around. Uh, incomes tended to you know, fluctuate. You could make, get a big payment and then you had to wait for a long time. And so pretty much every economic decision required some borrowing. And uh, I give some examples in my book. So, so how did it work? So how does the, the lending and borrowing relationship work? Because a couple of things in, in the book and some of the descriptions of these really stood out uh, there, since it's not through kind of formal or institutional financial uh, institutions uh, in general, it's a lot of private lenders. And that's the majority of type of lending and borrowing that's going on. It's individuals uh, borrowing money from other individuals. Some of them are professional, but some of them are just friends and family as well. And then there's this issue of issuing promissory notes to document. There's a whole thing about how to document the contract of the borrowing, the lending, and the interest. And then there are a couple of also other instances. One of them that really stood out to me in, in the beginning of the book, you have this one guy who needs to borrow 300 rubles and uh, he uh, approaches some you know, aristocrat uh, who can lend him the money minus 30 rubles for the interest. But then in the negotiations, this the lender is also requiring him to take a piano that's worth 600 rubles. And then the interest, after two months, he's supposed to pay him 2,000 rubles back. And so the interest is, is just incredible. Um, so talk about the, the kind of social relationship. And of course, the fact that, as you point out, one's credit is not through, you know, what we think in terms of financial institutions, but really based on your personal honor, your personal relationships. So how does a, a transaction of, of lending and borrowing work? Yes, absolutely. Well, that's a, that, this is a very rich question. Uh, so I'm going to take these issues in turn. Uh, well, first of all, uh, even in uh, this kind of early industrial Russia, as we would call it, uh, I mean, there were some banks. Uh, 
they were, um, in terms of who they were available to, it was pretty limited. So if you had serfs, you could mortgage those serfs to the state and get a loan that was pretty advantageous, but also the government was pretty strict about collecting uh, the pay- payment. So people who did not repay could you know, lose their serf villages, at least uh, you know, get a trustee appointed over it. Uh, then merchants also had their own certain avenues. There was a commercial bank, uh, a commercial credit that was slightly different. Um, now, in terms of um, how it worked in real life for normal, ordinary individuals, there's one example that I would like to highlight that I thought was really fun. It actually came from a memoir. There's this minor, minor intellectual uh, from Moscow, Alexander Milukov who came from this commercial old believer family. And so, and so the family was managing factories and was pretty wealthy, but it looks like he was just kind of like living on his own. Um, and so his father wanted to send this Alexander guy to a gymnasium, to a high school, right? So like basically get, get him a good education, maybe get him started on some, some kind of career. So the only problem with that is that you um, had to sign out of your local townspeople community, Mishanstva, right? Mishanska Obshastva, townspeople community. And they lost like several hundred rubles. I think it was 500 rubles. And uh, where are you going to up with that money? Uh, these people did not have that cash. And so there's really fascinating breakdown of uh, where they go uh, to get that cash. So some of it comes uh, from the local priest uh, who educated Alexander Milukov and he gave him this elementary education. Uh, so there was this kind of Tavarishiski uh, Zayom, this kind of friendly, comradely uh, loan, right? So, so a portion of the money. Another portion came from Alexander Father's employer, like a factory manager. Um, so that was going to be subtracted from, from Father's salary, okay? So, so there's this kind of like loan against your uh, sort of work at your employer for for your employer so so that's another part of it uh and but then there's still the rest and what in the world are you going to do so alexander's mother goes to a local merchant who deals in fake furs so you know he so he takes like you know takes a dog's fur and tries to sell it as a sable or whatever um and so this uh this kind of a newly made enterprising guy feels well hmm Young Alexander is a promising young man, so I'm going to sponsor his education a little bit. And so gives another 50 rubles. Uh, but even that is still not enough. Uh, you still have to buy him supplies. There's still Some of the money is still missing. So the mother goes um, has, to, has to go to an outside lender. She has to go to a professional. She chooses somebody who is not in her neighborhood, who is uh, uh, kind of lives on the other end of town. Um, at the other end of Moscow, so she takes her icon frame, takes like her her dowry, uh, her shawl, because you know Russian women would wear these really nice shawls at that time. That was part of the was part of the dowry. Dowry. Uh, dowry. She took a table silver, basically anything of value in the house uh, that she took over uh, to that money lender, and uh, she had to leave some of that property as uh, to count as interest. Uh, and she got the rest of the cash. And so you can see how uh, usually uh, an important event like that had to be financed from these like, variety of sources. Uh, and in terms of how it was documented, uh, that, that varied really hugely. So, But I think when, from what I could see is when a loan was significant, uh, people tended to write it up. 
So in other words, sometimes people would just borrow without, you know, without any kind of formality. Uh, but my sense is that even close relatives, there were all kinds of reasons why, and we'll talk about this in a second, judging from your questions, um, uh, th- there were very good reasons why you didn't just want to give money even to somebody you completely trust without writing this. Uh, now, in terms of uh, interest rates, uh, that's also uh, kind of the, really at the heart of what we're talking about here. That varied greatly if you had um, this kind of unreliable young person uh, who is living in St. Petersburg that was really expensive. Uh, yes, I mean, practical interest rate is going, going to be huge. It was more like a line of credit. Uh, so he signs uh, documents for uh, an exorbitant sum uh, and then in exchange gets these kind of occasional payments. You know, you sign documents for a few thousand rubles and you get a few hundred. Um, so there was that option. Uh, then there was an option of going to a pound shop uh, and the rates there were um, pretty high, but they were predictable. So legal interest rate was 6% per year. And uh, that, that was that was the little, but, but nobody, of course, you know, you could not possibly make a living if you uh, loans, loan money at 6% per year. So, uh, so, so, so there's this example that I use uh, when, when the Tsar's secret police, uh, the third section, they wanted to find out like what was, what is the real deal? What's the real scoop? And so they get one of their secret agents. They give him a silver watch, and they send him to a whole bunch of pawn shops in Petersburg and see how much money they can get for it. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether it's because uh, uh, they these lenders figured out that it was a tsarist agent or because there really was a, was a predictable market uh, for this kind of stuff. But, you know, there was some variation. Uh, there was something like uh, uh, maybe 10% per month not per year, per month. So, so it was a pretty high, uh, pretty high interest rate. But you know, compared to what what you know, payday uh, loan operations like in the United States today are, you know, this is pretty modest, actually. Right, right, totally. I mean, even for professional credit cards, in a lot of cases. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so it's it's nothing horrible. Then, in in terms of it's uh, uh, just you know one kind of noble born, you know, nobleman, noble, noble woman wanting to just put some money out on the street, as they say, um, you know, just make some, make an investment, you know, make some money. Uh, and th- that really would be a question of like individual bargaining. Now you, your story, I mean, you have, you make, I think uh, there are two major uh, main interventions that you're making in how we understand this period of Russia, but also Russia's historical development in general, and 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 one and they both address the question of the long-standing historiographical question of why Russia doesn't become more Western, and and your two focuses are on the rule of law and on private property, which many historians have have said that really never exists in Imperial Russia. So let's start with the law. Um, how did the law function? in regard to regulation, regulating and adjudicating debt and disputes over it? So so when I say uh, that the culture of debt in Russia was informal, uh, I think it's really important to keep in mind that it doesn't mean that debt functioned outside the law. So when I say it was informal, that refers to this lack of large-scale or limits um, of uh, a lack of large-scale institutional credit. So large private joint stock banks only appear in the 1860s. Uh, in, even at that point, 
they they kind of they prefer to to use these kind of former uh, former usurers or private lenders as basically broker intermediaries. So 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 there is this informal aspect of debt, but at um, the same time, and maybe because it was so informal, uh, the law uh, was absolutely essential. Uh, for several reasons. One is the one you indicated, is that you, there was a large variety of options in terms of how to document your transaction. Uh, that uh, and all of these forms were, you know, there you could find them in the digest of the laws. Uh, some of them were more designed for kind of private, non-commercial lenders. Others were designed for merchants. So there was a range of forms. Uh, and then, of course, if there is a dispute, if the deal doesn't work out well, uh, then um, law was all important. And so one of the things I was struck by when I was researching this, so I, I found these kind of situations that, you know, post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s was, was very infamous for. Uh, meaning violent debt collectors, or even today, in fact, uh, uh, violent debt collection, uh, sort of this kind of private self-help. Um, I uh, just uh, I never really never found examples like that. And, you know, it was not a particularly necessarily safe society. You know, there were a lot of highway robbers, and um, you know, there were a lot of like home invasions. Um, a lot of that stuff was happening, but it was just not part of this culture of credit. Uh, so that's that's very striking uh, in terms of uh, the sort of this, this larger idea of the rule of law. Um, of course, in sort of in our sort of English language um, culture, it comes from these late Victorian definitions that, uh, um, that that emphasized a bunch of factors like you know equality before the law. There should be sort of some process by which laws are adopted. But 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 there is one kind of hard factor that was was clearly absent in Russia. Which is an elected legislature, right? So there was a council of state that that made, but uh, but there was not an elected parliament, and and you can it's really impossible to to dispute that. Uh, now all these other factors are much softer in terms of you know equality and fairness and and procedure and so on. So so when I went um, in when I started working on this project over um, like twelve years ago, uh, I thought what I was going to find is that there was this horrendous system. That didn't work well at all. That existed before 1864, and then it got better uh, when the, this kind of kind of new system was introduced. Uh, which, just to remind, uh, um, you, know, you had professional, you know, university-trained lawyers. You had this adversarial procedure where you know the two sides um, in a dispute, or you know, prosecutor and the defendant, they basically uh, have more or less equal bargaining power uh, in the courtroom. You had jury trials for criminal cases. Um, uh, trials were oral rather than conducted in writing. So, so there's a lot of changes that made uh, Russian law uh, uh, look very much like um, you know, English or French or German and so on. Um, however, I started reading actual cases, uh, and I was kind of struck that, that um, in the system that was set up by Catherine the Great in 1775 and existed until the 1860s, I mean, there were a lot of things that were to us were bizarre. Uh, this were like this whole idea that you're conducting your trial, uh, quote unquote, through this kind of exchange of written petitions, and so potentially this could last for a very long time, um, or uh, the, the, this kind of rather rigid evidence rules that, for example, to convict somebody you either need a confession or you need two witnesses who were sworn witnesses, or you had documentary evidence that you know was not disputed. 
um, and, and kinds of circumstantial evidence, um, indirect evidence. Uh, and it was relevant, but it was not probative. Like it did not prove cases, right? So a lot of things that were weird, but at the same time, I found that the Russians were, you know, they were using the courts very avidly, very eagerly. It was an important part, litigation, uh, but also using the law to kind of formulate your property interests, to uh, formalize, document your property interests. It was really kind of a big deal of these pre, pre-reform uh, elite or middle-class society. So, so that's kind of at the heart of my argument. At, at the tail end of your answer, you, you mentioned the issue of property, and, and again, just to repeat, you know, one of the contentions of some historians is that there you never get the development of an idea or existence of private property in Imperial Russia. So, what is your what is your take? What is your argument about private property? Yes, uh, so this is one of the, the kind of most enduring, I would say, stereotypes about Russian history. Uh, like, for example, I remember late Richard Pipes uh, and uh, several other historians. You know, they were arguing that uh, private property. Uh, developed uh, really late, late Russia, you know, either it never developed or it developed, um, you know, in the late 18th century or even mid to late 19th century. I mean, that really doesn't explain this kind of a large volume of property transactions and uh, property litigation in, you know, 16th and 17th century Russia. Uh, but uh, in terms of um, my sort of overall approach, um, I agree with the uh, some of the recent literature, uh, like with Katya Pravilova, for example, that uh, this kind of notion of private property is not not sort of cure all uh, kind of a solution an unqualified good. Uh, that's just like if you don't have it, uh, you have to have it. If you don't have it, then there is something wrong with you, right? So, in other words, the sort of more recent argument is that you no know, private this is kind of idea of absolute private property. You know, it brought some problems uh, with it. Um, uh, nonetheless, in, in Imperial Russia, uh, we definitely have this regime uh, that, that goes way back, uh, you know, in a, a sort of early modern and medieval period. Uh, but uh, overall, how I approach pro- property, I don't think it's a one simple thing. Uh, in the property, property that, that's my legal training, comes, uh, comes into play. It's not something you, you either own it or you don't own it. You know, there's this rhetoric of absolute possession, fee simple, as they call it in the, in the Anglo-American system. But uh, in actual practice, property is this bundle of relationships and bundle of practices uh, that, that they European, you know, imperial Russian society and culture uh, just as much as uh, uh, just as much as they underpin our culture today. So, so that's my kind of fundamental um, approach. And so, in this, in this issue of property being a bundle of relationships and networks. Um, one of the things you do focus on is this issue of debt and property within in terms of family and kinship. So so how answering the issue back in in, in lending and, and borrowing money from say family members but also extended family members, how did these issues of debt and property work themselves out there? And this is actually one of the, my favorite chapters uh, uh, to write because there are all kinds of fascinating connections. And here I must say that um, uh, my work in part relied on this wonderful book by our late colleague, uh, Michel Lamarche-Marissi, who, who uh, was talking about uh, culture of property ownership uh, by noble women in Russia. And so she showed that uh, 
that, that, that women in Russia not only could legally own property, but that they also actively managed it. Um, there wasn't, there's not much, I mean, there's a little bit in her book about debt, maybe like a couple of paragraphs, but I just tried to uh, build up on this. And what I discovered is that there's this kind of matrix, um, I would say. So uh, what I mean is that people used debt for family strategies to affect their family strategies. And conversely, people used family relations to skew their property and credit interests. Okay. And then within that scheme, these kind of transactions and strategies, they could be friendly or, or they could be adverse. Okay. And I can probably talk a little bit more. I mean, this is kind of abstract. I can, uh, if you wish, I can um, talk a little bit uh, more about this. So, so for example, um, you know, every family of property owners had to deal with the question of how you pass your wealth uh, to the next generation. Uh, and, uh, there were all kinds of options. Uh, the best one was not to wait until somebody dies, but actually create some kind of arrangement uh, that you can control. Uh, and that was really kind of important here. And uh, sometimes, you know, if parents and children uh, were able to get along, um, it was all nice and friendly. But sometimes uh, I've seen stories when, um, you know, parents would pass all of their stuff uh, to the children while they were still alive, uh, including the dead, right? So, so, so you have this really happy nobleman. Uh, he's like, yes, I own this wonderful estate. Uh, and then uh, a little bit later, he realizes that he's like stuck with all of his dad's, you know, sinful uh, consequences of all of his sinful activities from, from two years ago. Uh, and um, so, so then, then it wasn't quite as, as pleasant. But then, of course, parents would pay uh, their children's debts a lot of the times. Um, Spouses would pay each other's debts, uh, but then spouses could uh, also, um, you know, use debt to basically lean on each other to to kind of bargain. Uh, uh, especially because uh, you know, you know where the law was very um, kind of very strict in terms of uh, disputes between between parent and children. There were special courts. It really was regarded as some kind of unnatural thing. Parents and children were not supposed to sue each other, but with uh, husbands and wives. Uh, you know, they were treated just like as uh, any two, you know, random uh, litigants. Uh, so, uh, so you know how divorce was very difficult in Imperial Russia, right? Uh, so I've seen cases when um, women would use the fact that their husbands owned their money, owed the money, uh, to basically to tell their husband, look, I'm going to be in debtor's prison uh, unless you agree to a divorce. Uh, and and also, no, that was actually, a, it seems like it was a reasonably effective strategy. Uh, so, and conversely, and conversely, people used family ties uh, in the property management. Uh, for example, you could get your husband or, or your wife uh, uh, be sort of officially listed as your creditor. And then if you go bankrupt, they're going to be on the bankruptcy board that makes the decisions. Yeah. So what about bankruptcy? Um, how did, how did this work? Yes. Yes. Uh, this is actually one of the kind of most interesting kind of classic kind of 19th century institutions uh, that uh, exist. Actually, was adopted in, in Russia pretty early compared to a lot of other places. Uh, like you know, in, you know, in the states, a permanent federal bankruptcy statute only appeared. Uh, I think it was um, very end of the 19th century. It was it 1898? I think. Uh, and in Russia, it was, was the very beginning of the 19th century. 
um, in, I think it was 1800 or 1801, uh, and then it was revised in the 1830s. Uh, so, so one thing to remember is that today um, in our culture, uh, bankruptcy is just something that at least a private person does to get a fresh start in life, right? Just something that you discard your debt, uh, keep your house, right? And then you, your credit rate, it rates a hit, and then you continue as before. And some people do it over and over and over again. Uh, in terms of the original uh, sort of idea behind bankruptcy is that it was just a convenience for the creditors, right? So it was not something to done to help out the, the borrower, but it was something to make sure that uh, creditors are treated fairly, that like, they don't end up you know, fighting fighting with each other, otherwise it gets completely left out. So this is something that encourages the debtor to you know, be, be, straight, be straightforward, to basically come out and you know, surrender his or her assets. Uh, and in exchange uh, for this kind of cooperation, he or she would get a discharge. Okay? But it's mostly to make sure that uh, the creditors can gather up whatever property is still available and divide it up fairly. Okay, that, that, that's what it was all about. And now in the process, there was this really fascinating uh, kind of structure that uh, you know, other countries, I think the Russians borrowed it from the French, for example, uh, th- that there was this uh, three-part system of how you treated your bankrupt person. So if the debt was due to um, you know, some kind of flood or fire or an enemy invasion, some kind of circumstance beyond your control, uh, then uh, you are much more likely to, to just get a clean start in life. You would get a complete discharge. But of course, in real life, that happened uh, very rarely. Uh, and so um, at, the, at the end of the spectrum, spectrum, fraudulent bankruptcy, right? So, and what that meant is that uh, if somebody was hiding stuff, if somebody was cooking account books, which, which by the way, uh, it seems like Russian merchants and uh, did all the time, uh, not so much because there was some kind of inherent dishonesty. I mean, I don't really think that, um, but just that uh, people valued their privacy a lot, and so there's a, uh, there was this kind of great reluctance to just kind of uh, show all of your dirty laundry to uh, to everybody. Uh, but but basically, if your creditors really really hated you, they could put you on trial for fraud, and um, and uh, this kind of bankrupt merchant could easy, easily up uh, marching to Siberia. Uh, so there was, but, but in the middle, there was this category of a reckless corrupt, which meant that you really didn't mean to defraud your creditors, uh, but you also weren't uh, weren't being a prudent uh, business person, a prudent investor. Uh, so you were held to be a reckless debtor, which means you you didn't get put into prison, maybe a little bit to debtors, debtors, but uh, you. Um, didn't really get a discharge, so they would let you out and let you continue to stay in business, but then uh, they could continue going after you in the few future. So there was this, and and, and then what the, the most fascinating thing about this is how, how these creditors would argue and evaluate uh, individuals' character, kind of the personal qualities, uh, how much did they drink, uh, how their family life was, and stuff like that. In, in many respects, this kind of character evaluation is is almost no different than than today. I mean, you know, one's credit rating is very much part of one's you know being in in modern society, right? It defines 
you know, the way your credit is evaluated, but also sometimes even how you're evaluated as a person is how you manage your debt vis-a-vis your, you know, what your credit rating is. Uh, yes, I mean, there's there's still this kind of kind of residual sense. I mean, maybe, um, I mean, ultimately, I think my my card company doesn't care how much I drink or how much I don't drink. Um, so. Um, there isn't, I would say, like there isn't quite as much prying into this kind of people's personal life. Uh, there's still, of course, a debt imprisonment. You know, even in this country, it's just called. I mean, there was quite a lot of publicity uh, a few years ago of, uh, um, of basically debt imprisonment is for poor people in this country. Uh, but at least in, in the 19th century, um, I would say there was it was a lot more invasive in that sense. Right, so 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 I think like ultimately, if you say buy a house, uh, ultimately the only thing that um, a bank is really caring about is like whether there is a house and whether it's worth what you say it's worth. One of the starest institutions that makes a a very large presence in your story, in addition to the courts, are the police. Um, what is the role of the police in this vast network of of you know, lending and borrowing money and debt. Uh, they were really at the heart of this um, enforcement uh, system. Uh, so, especially in urban areas, um, uh, this kind of police that, uh, especially that existed, uh, you know, during before and during immediately after the great reforms, um, they were sort of uh, with a lot of things that, like, you wouldn't think your you know local sheriff today would be uh, busy with, right? Um, so um, this this kind of very revealing example uh, that I use in my book comes from a, an early uh, short story by Nikrasov, right, the Russian poet, um, which involves this kind of young, educated but penniless uh, young man uh, in Saint Petersburg uh, who is being kicked out of his apartment, right? And so there's this this stereotype that uh, Russian law at that time uh, was pro. Um, uh, was pro pro borrower. I mean, it's not really um, kind of very accurate stereotype. Uh, but then, is this Nikrasov story? You see how things worked in real life. So there wasn't really. I mean, nobody really on the, at this kind of basic fundamental level. Nobody went to to court. It's just one day. This young man wakes up, and he sees there's a policeman, there's a creditor, and then there's his landlord. So all three of them show up. You know, take his possessions uh, other than his underwear and just throw him out without much ceremony. And so police was really uh, very heavily involved uh, in this kind of regulation uh, of uh, this kind of very low level uh, credit relations. Uh, so so they were kind of like the first, you know, like the first, um, uh, how to say, the first um, institution that, that was involved. And then if, if the policeman shows up at your house, demands payment, uh, and you're saying, well, actually, I already, already paid, and here's this little note that shows that I paid. In other words, there's some kind of question, some, some kind of dispute, then you, then the police is supposed to stop whatever they're doing, and the, the case is supposed to move uh, into a court. But but the borrower, but then there's this, this really fascinating thing. The borrower, uh, the, the person who is being sued has to, what they call secure, abispechit, to secure the lawsuit. So you have to post some kind of property uh, in the amount of lawsuit, uh, and if you don't have that property, then the 
the other side could arrest you. They could, could send you to a debtor's prison. And I'm sure we'll talk about debtor's prison in a second. But but the, but probably one of my, my favorite examples about how Russian police operated at that time. Um, and of course, there's this reputation for heavy-handedness and uh, kind of a very lax attitude to you know, legal procedures and legal formalities. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of it, of it was true, you know, this love of bribery and, and so on. They were not paid very much, of course. Uh, uh, but there's this history of a wealthy old believer merchant, uh, Butikov, a but- a but- that, uh, that I uh, give in my book uh, and his long conflict with Moscow police. Uh, it's this really fascinating uh, story showing how, uh, even though the police was very heavy handed, it was not all powerful. And so, so the, the, the gist of that story is that um, Butikov was kind of very well known for, for engaging in bitter disputes with all kinds of people, and especially uh, with various city authorities. And so there's one time that the police wanted to collect a debt against his younger son, and they show up at his house, kind of more or less break in, really, beat up his, beat up his servants, uh, they knock them around, and they don't find anything, and then they're like really rude to the old man himself, but he's also very rude to them. Uh, he's like, yeah, sure, of course you can write, you know, you can write 10 protocols also happen, but I'm not going to give you paper to write it on. So, and paper, of course, was really exp- expensive. Uh, and so at the end, he managed to get these the two these two these two been fired after sort of complaining enough uh, uh it's just the the city authorities thought that like if these kind of policemen could not you know live in peace with the wealthiest merchants in moscow then they should be replaced and, and what about debtors prisons i mean you've already mentioned this a, a couple of times um what were they and how did they compare to with other instant you know debtors institutions or penal institutions in 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 the west yes and the Russians actually liked these kind of comparative studies that at one point they sent uh, one state official, I think he was actually a doctor, a physician, they sent him to Paris to find out how debtors' prisons are run in Paris. Um, but um, the, the gist of it is that compared to British or U.S. debtors' prisons, uh, especially so-called unreformed British debtors' prisons, that existed earlier in the 19th century, uh, Russian debtors' prisons population was was much, much smaller. So instead of uh, talking about instead of thousands of people being imprisoned for that, you know, we're talking about hundreds. Even in Moscow or Petersburg, there would be at best a few hundred. Uh, and then because um, there was this very strong tradition of charity. Uh, and uh, there would be private donations. Uh, the imperial family would give money to redeem these debtors. And usually these donations were given out uh, just before Easter and Christmas. Uh, so just before these major holidays, you would have this massive increase in the prison population. So people would be like, okay, actually I have a chance of, to, to get some of my money back. So so I'm going to put my debtor into prison for this time. And I, th- I mean, there were even accusations that people would just like do it to each other, to their friends. Just kind of in this fraudulent way, which is you know possible, of course, uh, but it was not good for your reputation to be put into debtors' prison. So I'm not sure how far this kind of swindling uh, actually went. Um, but the so so the first thing to know is that uh, Russian debtors' prisons were pretty small. Um, there were some prisoners that were kept at local police stations. And there were some prisoners who were kept at various uh, 
sort of smaller credit centers uh, outside of Moscow and Petersburg, like uh, in Odessa, especially in Berdichev in Ukraine. Um, you know, Warsaw, of course, had um, in Poland had had a credit system, um, but in Moscow and Petersburg, usually on a normal day there would be maybe a hundred prisoners, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, then the one one key reason for that is that uh, lenders were required to pay for their prisoners, so you you supposed to like pay a few rubles every month, which was not negligible, uh, to basically feed them. And as you can see, most people would be pretty upset about this idea, right? So, like, I I'm already owed a bunch of money, so so in the worth, why in the world would I pay even more money? Especially if the case case would, if your debtor was sick or you know out of work, uh, you would be much more motivated to let him or her you know get a job rather than staying in prison. What was the function of the debtor's prison, though? Because on the one hand, it doesn't sound you know, it, it, it doesn't come across as overly punitive. And if it's going to also make the, the lender pay for the, the imprisoning of their borrower, it, it seems to, it seems to, and it seems to, from what your description, it seems to play two roles. One is to, uh, as a shaming mechanism in terms of like, you know, you were in debtor's prison, so your reputation is ruined. And then second, it seems to try to push for some sort of resolution of whatever the dispute is between lender and borrower. Yes, absolutely. It was a negotiating tactic. So a lot of the times, uh, what creditors would do is that they would just simply uh, submit what they what they call the maintenance money, karmawi dengi. Um, they, they would submit that money, money, government, without actually arresting their prisoner, but that just served to demonstrate your resolution, like your resolve to actually get that repayment. So it was a negotiating tactic. It's it's actually very striking because uh, because unlike in um, uh, what we call Anglo-American system, where uh, these kind of punitive measures, at least in the later nineteenth century and, and actually today for that matter, uh, uh, to be disproportionately applied against uh, poorer debtors, whereas wealthy debtors could get out of it more easily. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, Moscow and Petersburg system. Uh, tended to be harder on actually very wealthy debtors, very bankrupt merchants who were either hiding their stuff somewhere, like with their relatives, for example, which they did all the time. So like, so, you know, you have a, so you have a creditor, you show up at your debtor's house and you said, there's all these, uh, you know, there's all these uh, cases for table silverware without any silverware. You know, you have a bunch of icon frames without any icons on them or paintings in them. Right, you have you know some pieces of porcelain without others, uh, and, um, and and you get really upset, and then you basically going to put this uh, guy in prison until he pays up. Uh, so, so so in other words, this this kind of really wealthy um, uh, merchants uh, would be the last ones to be redeemed. Uh, in terms of why sort of poor debtors or middle class debtors uh, would get imprisoned, uh, it's. Uh, you know, really sort of a combination of reasons. Uh, and and uh, to the extent that they talk about this at all, uh, sometimes it was a negotiating tactic, sometimes it was just a, this issue of anger. Uh, just sometimes uh, my guess is that, uh, again, like I said, creditors were hoping uh, to get some kind of charitable donation. And finally, um, the other big issue in your discussions of debt, private property, law, 
is also about the development of capitalism in Russia in 19th century. So what is your research on credit and debt and all of the relationships that um, these involve say about the development of capitalism in the 19th century in Russia? So there is no, uh, really no serious dispute that uh, this kind of large-scale financial capitalism appeared in the Russian Empire, you know, somewhat later than it did in Central and Western Europe. And we're talking about this kind of widespread use of joint stock companies uh, with limited liability, uh, right? Uh, even though, of course, limited liability itself existed since the early 19th century, and so did joint stock company, uh, but it, was, it wasn't really used until 1860s and, and, and 70s. Um, so that all of that appeared later, uh, but not by a lot. Okay, so we're not talking about this kind of lag of, uh, uh, you know, 50 years or whatever compared to, say, Austria or Prussia or even France. We're talking about, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe. So in places like Germ Germany, various parts of Germany and France, it's going to be 1850s. And in Russia, it's going to be 1860s. So, so that's the difference. Uh, in terms of industrial capitalism, right, we're talking about factory system that, of course, you know, these kind of large-scale industrial enterprises that would not be possible without a reasonably robust credit system. Um, these, uh, of course, you know, first factories appeared in Russia. We're talking about mechanized factories uh, in the very early uh, 19th century, right? So in other words, uh, sort of large-scale massive industrialization is going to happen uh, under Vita in the 1890s, but you had this uh, reasonably robust kind of sector of industry that existed throughout the 19th century, um, and so my uh, so my argument here in this book is that there was this cultural and legal framework in place uh, that would we have to trace it. I would say we have to trace it to to the uh, 18th century at the you know at the latest. Uh, and uh, there, there's some work by other people. I'm not a historian of early modern Russia, but there are some uh, fragments of research. Uh, that you know looks at the sources of financial capitalism in the early modern period. Like for example, uh, there's a just to give you one very small example. There's this fascinating history of the Stroganov family, right? The, this kind of early, um, this kind of merchant tycoons of the early modern period. Uh, and uh, we all know about uh, every, a lot of people have heard about the salt trade, right? So they made their fortune uh, selling salt. Um, but however. Uh, the same fascinating book by a Russian scholar uh, mentions that at the heart, at the very beginning of the struggle of fortune, were the mortgage mortgage operations. So they uh, they basically they made this cash uh, by you know lending lending money to people, and you know monasteries, gentry, peasants, they lend money to everybody, uh, and then they use that money to actually kind of spread out and kind of diversify the interest. So so we have this kind of commercial financial. Um, capitalist uh, trends going back into the early modern period. And then by the time we get into the mid-19th century, which is what I'm researching, uh, we, we have this very rich culture of uh, property ownership uh, that kind of permeated people's daily lives, their attitudes, the kind of ways they dealt with the imperial state uh, that all sort of depended on, on this kind of complex network uh, of exchange uh, of credit, of risk and risk management. Uh, 
so so in other words, uh, these things that I'm writing about, they are kind of underpinning uh, these kind of capitalist development, capitalist transformation. Uh, and here I'm, I've been inspired by, uh, not just simply by some work by my Russianist colleagues, but also there's a very rich literature in English uh, on this kind of origins of credit uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the United States, but also uh, you know, in the early United States especially, uh, but also in Britain. And there's also some literature about from France, Germany, and other places, but uh, Anglo-American literature is particularly um, sort of fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Um, I could also talk about this uh, issue of fraud, if you wish. Uh, it's also kind of a very, uh, a very one of my favorite chapters, actually. What about issues of fraud? How did this? Because you do, I do recall one story that you had where. Um, uh, there's this kind of young aristocratic guy, and he's on uh, an allowance from his father, and his father has pretty good connections. Um, you, you, and and connect even connections all the way up into the imperial family, and and the son gets kind of in, in, ensnared in this, you know, swindler money lenders that kind that that you know place a lot of debt on him with exorbitant amounts of. Um, you know, of, of interest. It really is a predatory lending situation. Um, so how did these issues work in terms of, you know, this, first off, the, the criminal aspects of, of lending and also issues of fraud, because you've also mentioned people hide various property to get around debts and collectors and things like this. Absolutely. And in fact, this was one of my favorite um, theme that I researched uh, uh, to the extent that now our and my second project is about crime. Uh, and especially about white-collar crime, crime, fraud, embezzlement, swindling, forgery, but in the later period, uh, sort of it, the, the, toward the later on in the 19th century, uh, because it was just so much fun. Um, so so we usually think about criminal law and civil law as these two completely separate areas, right? So crime is something you go to prison for, and civil law is something that uh, you know involves money. Um, well, the actual line between the two, as you actually just yourself indicated, uh, is, is, is kind of very vague, right? Uh, so, like, for example, if somebody is uh, uh, trying to collect a debt and you say, say, oh, I already paid it, or you say, oh, no, I don't recognize my signature on this document, you would automatically get a criminal trial. Um, and so this issue of deception and trans- transgression is one of those key 19th century issues that people are trying to work out. Uh, and that's, I'm still continuing to research this now, but like, how do you define deception and how do you uh, separate, you know, sort of legitimate deception saying basically, of course, I, I'm, I promise I'm going to repay this debt. I'm good for it, right? Of course, I'm wealthy. I'm, I know I'm a prince. So how do you separate this from, you know, a criminal offense that somebody is going to prison for and uh, and and neither in victorian britain nor in um, 19th century russia there was a clear answer this is something that people were continuously uh, disputing uh, but importantly in the in this kind of cultural credit that all the all depend on appearances and reputation and personal connections uh, there was a very kind of unique uh, uh, peculiar rather variety of fraud uh, where people would you know, try to go and mortgage non-existent landed estates with non-existent serfs, almost like you know one of the goggles works, right? Um, you uh, and then sometimes they would use their wives, sometimes even their mothers. Uh, they would have a bunch of their friends who would all kind of replicate this uh, kind of fake unit 
in Russia's culture of property, they would all go and vouch. So you take your wife with you uh, to sign this kind of debt transaction, and you would mortgage a you know a house that wasn't actually there. Um, so, so, so it's very, uh, very, very striking uh, how this is sort of an important part uh, of uh, of what credit was all about. Uh, and, and and sort of one sort of key thing that I want to highlight is that I think a lot of us think. I mean, I've met more than one colleague tends to think that this emphasis on fraud. I mean, it's something. It's not exactly a victimless offense, but it's just a, just a price that you had to pay for, you know, economic growth, economic transformation, economic modernization. And then I really having hard time kind of agreeing this. Um, I think whether whether in, in, I mean, there are other people who say that for Britain, um, victims were very real. Victimhood, a loss, loss. Uh, I mean, they were re- very real, very sort of noticeable. And just sort of one example is this first a failure of a bank uh, of a large commercial bank in 1875, Moscow Commercial Loan Bank, which is I'm researching right now. And uh, the government, the public, were struck by how you had like these thousands of victims who lost all of their savings to these bunch of swindlers. You know, they, they show up during the trial, and, like to the effect that like trial had to be postponed because it was something like a public demonstration in effect. So, so it's a very sort of key part uh, that I think is like integral to the story that I'm telling. That was Sergei Antonov, an assistant professor of history at Yale University, where he specializes in modern Russia, with particular interest in politics, culture, and society in the late imperial and early Soviet periods. He's the author of Bankrupts and Usurers of Imperial Russia, Debt, Property, and the Law in the Age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, take a moment to share it on social media, like my Facebook page, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends and family. As I always say, the SRB podcast is cheap, but it's not free to make, so you can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. I want to thank all of my patrons, all of my supporters, my high excellencies, my high wellborns, and all of my noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time. Bye.